From the K-Rob Collection, this is Audio Antiques, featuring programs from the golden age of American radio. I'm Ken Robinson. We're paying tribute to one of America's greatest inventors. From 1939, we have an episode from the radio reality show, Strange As It Seems. This installment features a look at the life of Dr. George Washington Carver. Dr. Carver was an agricultural scientist who promoted alternative crops to cotton and methods to prevent soil depletion, saving the southern United States from economic ruin. He appears in a live interview. We'll also hear the story of his life in a 1948 episode of Destination Freedom. Panoramic Lifestyle Clothing What is a panoramic lifestyle? Well, it's an unobstructed view of all your opportunities to see a vision for the future and to understand that your vision can take you in many different directions. Panoramic Lifestyle is a movement comprised of a variety of different visions coming together in unity to create one big picture. And that's Panoramic Lifestyle Clothing. It's a vision that moves in all directions. Based in beautiful Scottsdale, Arizona, Panoramic Lifestyle Clothing is set to be the hottest up-and-coming streetwear brand, featuring the most distinctive t-shirts ever created. Check out our extensive collection at Panoramic Lifestyle Clothing on Instagram. Not just a brand, but a movement to inspire a goal-oriented lifestyle, a goal to have a vision and to stick to it. Panoramic Lifestyle Clothing. Palm Olive Lather Cream and Palm Olive Brushless, both made with soothing olive oil for greater shaving comfort, present... Strange as it seems. This is Aloys Abrilla bringing you fascinating stories, which John Hicks, the famous cartoonist, has collected from every corner of the globe. Did you know that there are only 44 states in the United States? I'll give you the answer to that one before the end of the program. But first you will hear the amazing stories of the man whose touch was gold, the most beautiful wife in America, the scientist who was traded for a racehorse, and the duel that was fought with a powder keg. And believe me, these stories are really strange. But there's nothing strange about the fact that more men use palm olive shave cream than any other kind. Why, palm olive is the only nationally sold shave cream made with olive oil, nature's finest skin conditioner. You get smooth, quick, clean shades with comfort beyond your fondest dreams. Remember, both palm olive lather cream and palm olive brushless are made with olive oil. Whichever type you buy, be sure it's palm olive shave cream. Who is the world's most ingenious salesman? When did he live? Where did he live? Well, his name was Timothy Dexter. His story begins shortly after the American Revolution when the paper money issued by the Continental Congress had little value. Citizens of the United States wanted silver and gold, and Timothy Dexter had silver and gold. In his office in Charleston, Massachusetts, one morning... 
Uh, Mr. Dexter, I understand you are buying up continental currency. Why don't you know that pasteboard stuff is absolutely worthless? Uh, how much of the stuff have you got? A thousand pounds, sir. Well, I'll give you a hundred pounds for the lot. Oh, well, that's a big loss, but uh, uh, can I have it in gold, Mr. Dexter? Very well, in gold. People thought Timothy Dexter a fool, but Dexter was gambling on the genius of Alexander Hamilton, and he won because Hamilton solved the new nation's financial problems, established a national bank, and the almost worthless continental currency soon had a real value. Timothy Dexter had a small fortune, but that was just the beginning. Dexter chartered a ship to sail to the West Indies. A few hours before sailing time, a clerk is talking to Mr. Dexter. Mr. Dexter, the ship is in the harbor ready to sail, but there's no cargo available. What? Well, I've cleared that vessel for Cuba. There's got to be a cargo. I'll tell you what. We'll load her with cats. Cats? Cats, Mr. Dexter? Yes, those four-legged animals that go uh, meow. You've uh, seen them, no doubt. Oh, yes, sir. Cats. Offer ten cents each for all the cats you can get. Have them put aboard. Spread the word along the waterfront. Timothy Dexter is buying cats. Are you the captain of this vessel? I am. Port of Authority of Cuba, Captain. I'm here to inspect the cargo. Oh, yes, yes, the cargo. What are you carrying? What? Well, you can... Here, here, I'll pull up the hat. Don't blame this on me, Inspector. I just under orders, you know. There. Cats. How many of them are there, Captain? 892, sir. Splendid. 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 Are you balmy, Inspector? Far from it. My government is paying $5 a piece for cats. $5? What does the government want with cats? Have you not heard? Havana is overrun with rats. Rats that are eating our food, spreading disease. These cats are worth their weight in gold. Strange as it seems, Timothy Dexter sold his cargo of cats at a handsome profit. And with the years... Timothy Dexter's fantastic ventures continued. In Dexter's office, his captain says, Well, sir, the ship's loaded and ready to sail. Have you decided on the port? Yes, Captain. You'll sail to Newcastle, England. Well, we're loaded with coal, Mr. Dexter. Yes, yes, I know that, Captain. Mr. Dexter, carrying coal to Newcastle? Newcastle's the heart of the British coal industry. You have your orders, Captain. Right, sir. You're the owner. One morning, four weeks later, and across the Atlantic... Timothy Dexter's Newcastle agent comes aboard. We're Captain. What's Mr. Dexter sent this time? I hate to tell you, sir. Hey, come on. It can't be as bad as that. I'm afraid Mr. Dexter's losing his mind. It's coal for Newcastle. Coal? Bless Dexter's heart. The miners are rioting, and there's not a skittle of coal in the whole of Newcastle. Strange as it seems, super salesman Timothy Dexter never missed though he defied all the rules of business. He sent long-handled warming pans to the tropics and sold them as frying pans. He shipped a cargo of woolen mittens to the West Indies and sold them at a profit to a Scandinavian vessel that happened to be in port. Cats and coal, mittens and warming pans and paper money, they all turned into gold for Timothy Dexter, strange as it seems. Well, that story shows there's a difference in most jobs we men do. Now, some men shave in five minutes, others in 15. Either way, you'll shave more comfortably with palm olive lather cream. Because palm olive lather wills whiskers like lightning, yet stays moist for slow shavers. Even more important, palm olive leaves your skin smooth, soft, refreshed. You see, 
palm olive lather cream is made with olive oil, nature's finest skin conditioner. Enjoy this extra benefit at no extra cost. Tomorrow, buy palm olive lather cream made with olive oil. The most beautiful wife in America. Who is she? A former Miss America, still a reigning beauty queen, even though it's Mrs. now? No, sir. Strange as it seems, the wife whose face and figure, which in the opinion of competent judges outclassed all others, had never entered a beauty contest before last week. In private life, she's Mrs. Armand Donnarumma of Union City, New Jersey. But for the next 12 months at least, she's Mrs. America. Will you step up to the microphone a moment, Mrs. America? Right here? Yes, that's right. Now then, how does it feel to know that you've been chosen the most beautiful wife in the country? Fine. Well, I'm a little hazy on the details of the Mrs. America contest. Uh, how is it run? Well, it's a regular beauty contest, Mr. Havrilla, just like the contest for Miss America. Only you have to be married to get into it. Mm, it's a rather new idea, isn't it? Yes, sir. It was only started last year. Uh, well, what did they judge you for in the Mrs. America contest? The same as the other. Your looks and, you know, your figure and all that. Yes, and while I'm no expert, I should say they've done a very good job of judging. I wish all of you could see Mrs. America of 1939 here in the studio tonight. Mrs. Donnarumma is, I should say, about five feet six inches tall, and she weighs about 110 pounds. <laughs> uh, she has golden hair, sparkling blue eyes, and the most beautiful peaches and cream complexion you ever saw. Now tell me, Mrs. Donnarumma, were you nervous in the beauty contest? Not very. Mostly I was worried about getting back to my job in time. I'd only ask them for two hours off, you see. Oh, you have a job. Yes, my husband and I both work. Well, just what do you do? I'm an elevator operator in a big New York department store. But I'm hoping that maybe this will help me get a job modeling. Mm, I see. Now, uh, and are there any little donor rumors? No, not yet. <laughs> well, but tell me again now, how did you happen to enter the contest? Well, it was my husband's idea. Oh, so your husband wanted you to enter. And how does he feel now that you're Mrs. America? Well, he feels pretty good. <laughs> he says now I have to believe everything he tells me. Oh, how's that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've always laughed at him when he told me he'd marry the prettiest girl in the world. You know, I said he was kidding like husbands do. But now he says it's proved just as true as everything else he's ever said. <laughs> well, so far as I can see, he was absolutely right. Thank you. And thank you, Mrs. America of 1939. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, strange as it seems, for Mr. and Mrs. Armand Donnarumma, that very husbandly remark, I've got the prettiest wife in 48 states, has actually been verified by the decision of the expert judges in the Mrs. America Beauty Contest. Now listen, men. Before you believe judging a beauty contest is a cinch, try it yourself sometime. And before you say all brushless shave creams are hard to spread, try palm olive brushless. Palm olive spreads smoothly, evenly, because it's made with olive oil doesn't lump up, dry out, or clog the razor. And best of all, palm olive brushless is kind to your skin because olive oil is nature's finest skin conditioner. Tomorrow, ask for palm olive brushless made with olive oil. From the files of John Hicks comes the amazing but true story of one of America's best-known scientists. It begins in the grim days of reconstruction immediately following the war between the states. 
The story begins in the plantation house of Moses Carver near Diamond Grove, Missouri. The time, the late 1860s. In the great plantation house, Moses Carver questions a Negro hired hand. Now, let me get this straight, Joe. You say there was a band of those men, and they came to our land just after sundown last night. Yes, sir. That's the truth, Mr. Carver. Burn down my bonds, will they? Then after they... After that, uh, they run off all the stock down the road, and then they come and took Mary and the baby off with them. You saw them take Mary away? Yes, sir, and the baby. What'd they run off with Mary for, Joe? Plain meanness, I reckon. What's that paper you got in your It's got writing on it. Here, let me see it, Joe. What'd it say, Mr. Carver? Mmm, those scoundrels... Say, say they'll give up Mary if I give them that chestnut race horse. That's a powerful good horse, Mr. Carver. Joe, go out in the pasture and catch that horse. I'm going to give it to them. Moses Carver delivered the racehorse, but the kidnappers never returned Mary. Nothing more was heard of her, but her baby, sick and near death, was returned, and the Carvers did what they could for the infant. Nursed it back to health, had it baptized, gave it their own name, and the name of a very famous American, George Washington. Then one day in 1863, on the Missouri plantation, the young colored lad, George Washington Carver, timidly enters the study of his benefactor, Moses Carver. Hello, George. Uh, Mr. Carver, can I talk with you? Sure, boy. What's on your mind? Well, sir, I'm most 14 years old now, and I can't neither read nor write. George, don't tell me you want to learn to read and write. Yes, sir, Mr. Carver. I don't want to be a field hand all my life. I see. Well, I got an old blue-backed spell I'll give you, and when the words get too long, I'll help you if I can. Now, how's that? Uh, that thank you, Mr. Carver. I'll do my best for you. Young George Washington Carver mastered the old blueback speller. Still, his thirst for knowledge was not satisfied. An insatiable thirst and curiosity that impelled him to leave the plantation fields. Of course I'll teach you, but eight miles is a long way to walk to school every day. Eight miles ain't on distance at all when you've got things you've got to learn, ma'am. You just start teaching, I'll be here. Say, George, what you gonna do when you go to get through high school? I reckon I'll go to college. College? Where you gonna get that much money? Same as I'm doing here in Minneapolis. Wait for it. Maybe wash dishes, maybe scrub floors. George Washington Carver? Yes, sir. Having fulfilled the requirements laid down by the Board of Trustees, Iowa State College is happy to present to you the degree of Master of Science. Thank you. Thank you very much. Studying by day, working by night, young George Washington Carver obtained an education few of his race possessed in the year 1896. He became associated with Tuskegee Institute in Alabama. One day during the World War, Booker T. Washington, founder of the college, entered the laboratory of the scientist. My secretary said you wanted me to come down to your laboratory, Dr. Carver. Yes, Mr. Washington. You remember the government report you showed me a short time ago? You mean about the cotton crop being destroyed by boll weevil? Yes. Then we discussed the wheat shortage. Yes, that's right. Our people here in the South are really facing starvation. No cotton this year, no food. It looks very serious, Carver. Well, I've been experimenting here, and I think I've got something. Here, taste this. Huh? Uh, you like it? Mmm. Hey, that's good. That's very good, but but I don't that's see... That's sweet potato bread, Mr. Washington. Sweet potato bread? Yes, and that's what's going to feed our people during this war. We're going to plant sweet potatoes on the cotton fields and use sweet potato in bread instead of grain. And I'm working on other uses, too. I'll find the market for our crops. 
But with the harvesting of the first large sweet potato crop that was to be used as a wheat substitute, George Washington Carver's troubles really began. Uh, Dr. Carver, the dietitians want to know exactly what food value is in this new bread. Dr. Carver, we doctors are wondering if this bread is really digestible. Frankly, Dr. Carver, the government doubts that it is possible to bake bread from sweet potatoes. That's why I've called you to Washington. As Dr. Carver answered all criticisms, satisfied dietitians, physicians, and the United States government, the fame of the Negro scientist grew. Then one day, from another scientist laboratory in New Jersey, comes a telegram. To George Washington Carver, Tuskegee Institute, Tuskegee, Alabama. I followed your work. Would be honored if you would join me in experiments at my laboratory. Name your own salary. We'll pay your expenses up here to consider proposition. Signed, Thomas A. Edison. To Thomas A. Edison, Menlo Park, New Jersey. Thank you very much. My people need me here. There's no need for me to waste your money by coming north to say no. Signed, George Washington Carver. Refusing the offer of Thomas A. Edison, George Washington Carver continued his work and experiments. Then a few months later in his laboratory, Booker T. Washington watches Mr. Carver as he pours a muddy solution from a test tube. This, Mr. Washington, is an analysis of the soil on which we grew the sweet potatoes. Mm-hmm. Every bit of mineral has been exhausted from this soil by the sweet potato. Well, what are we going to do? We must issue a bulletin telling the farmers to grow peanuts. Peanuts? They'll revitalize the soil, and it's the only thing that will. But man alive, Carver, peanuts aren't even listed as a crop on the government reports. They will be, Mr. Washington. But what are people going to do with the peanut crop? I'll have to find that out, Mr. Washington. I'll have to find a use for the peanut. Again, Mr. Carver found the answer to the farmer's problem in his laboratory. And strange as it seems, today all the world knows that George Washington Carver's experiments with the peanut have been of enormous value to southern agriculture. Dr. Carver is right here in the studio with me, and we'll let him tell his own story. Dr. Carver. Thank you, Mr. Havrilla. And it's quite an experience to sit back and have your life story acted out for you. Oh, but it's a life story with a lot more chapters yet to be written, Dr. Carver. I certainly hope so, Mr. Havrilla. But I'm not as young as I once was. I was somewhere in the 70s on my last birthday. Uh, Dr. Carver, I understand you've raised the peanut to new heights. Well... The peanut industry is a $60 million business now. At Tuskegee, we've developed more than 200 products from peanuts. We've made everything from axle grease to synthetic rubber. And we're finding out new uses for the peanut constantly. What are you working on now, Dr. Carver? The finest use we've been able to make of peanuts is in the treatment of the after effects of infantile paralysis. That's what I'm working on now. Massages with peanut oils has worked miracles in some cases. There is a lot of work to be done, but I feel we're on the trail of something really important. Thank you very much, Dr. Carver. You have just heard Dr. George Washington Carver, one of America's leading agriculture scientists, a man who has devoted his life to help give the agricultural South a new outlook on life. This great scientist is not ashamed of the fact that he does not birth date, and strange as it seems, he was once traded for a racehorse.
friends, you can't shave one whisker without touching the blade to your skin. Therefore, I suggest palm olive shave cream made with olive oil because olive oil is nature's finest skin conditioner. You will enjoy smooth shaves plus real skin comfort. Both palm olive lather cream and palm olive brushless are made with olive oil but cost no more. So take your choice. Just be sure it's palm olive shave cream. <laughs> Dueling is not an American sport. But when an American just has to fight a duel, you can trust him to fight in an unusual way of doing it. And that's just what the American patriot, General Israel Putnam, did when he made the most unusual choice of weapons in the history of dueling. As our story opens, Putnam was in command of a revolutionary garrison near the Hudson River when one of his soldiers approached him. General Putnam, uh, we're in for a bit of trouble. Edward, trouble? Hmm. We've had trouble in infinite variety. Now, what's the new nuisance? This red coat officer you paroled, Major Hawks, he's parading around town declaring you're a coward. Mm, coward, eh? Mustn't let the men think I'm a coward. But what can you do, General Putnam? Challenge him? Challenge him? To a duel? And to which I'm surprised, of course. If he should happen to challenge me, well, naturally. But suppose you have a little chat with this red coat. Come on, come on. Now, there's the major now, General. So it is. Red-faced chap, isn't he? Tastes almost as red as his jacket. Comes to drinking too much port after dinner. Shouldn't drink too much port after dinner, though. Here he comes, General. Swaggering as if he were cock of the walk instead of a parole prisoner. Cock of the walk, eh? Gives me a splendid idea. <clears throat> Good afternoon, Major. May I have a word with you? Eh? What word would you want with me, rebel? I've heard you compared me to a mouse, a frightened mouse. And if I have? Why, well, I was just thinking how strange that I, too, was just comparing you if to... Have you dared call me a mouse? No, 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 not at all. Rather a rooster, a strutting, red-combed rooster. You're insulting, sir. Perhaps you'd oblige us by crowing. You've insulted me, sir. I demand satisfaction. Eh? You're suggesting a duel? If you're a gentleman, you'll give me a chance to wipe out this insult. Very well, Major, but since you're, I'm the challenge party, I have the choice of weapons. Of course. So be it. Under the old oak just outside the garrison gate at sunrise tomorrow. Agreed? Agreed. True to his word, early the following morning, General Putnam was waiting for the British officer under the old oak just outside the garrison gates. General Putnam, seated on a small keg, is approached by one of his seconds. General Putnam? Sir, Major Hawks is here. And now then, uh, what about the weapons? Weapons, weapons. Oh, yes, yes. Of course, of course, weapons. I'm sitting on the weapons. Uh, what? This uh, gunpowder keg. But, General, this is highly irregular. You... Hey, what's this nonsense about weapons? Swords or pistols? All is aimed to me. No, no, Major. Neither swords nor pistols. Since the duel is a test of courage, well, there's room on this party cake for both of us to sit. Sir, this is nonsense. You'll uh, note there's a fuse attached. May burn ten minutes, may burn five, or less. You're mad, General. Mm -hmm. Not at all. We'll both sit on the cake. I like the fuse, or, or you may light it if you wish. First man to run away... Uh, I should say the first man to give up his seat on the keg is the loser. Simple, eh? General Putnam, this is highly irregular. There is nothing in the code. The code says the challenge party has the choice of weapons. Oh, it's crude and ungentlemanly. And I'll go through with it. Splendid. Pray be seated. 
It's madness. Madness, I tell you. Would you care to light the fuse? No? No, then permit me. <clears throat> there, this torch will do it. Sheer insanity. I quite agree, Major. The two otherwise intelligent men should settle some childish dispute with pistols or cold steel. It's sheer insanity. Uh, how long will that uh, fuse burn? Well, hard to tell. Fuses such as we have are very poor quality. Some burn fast and some burn slow. I believe we'll have a warm day, Major. Uh, both likely to be blown to bits. By the way, Major, there's said to be splendid fishing in the book. You're mad, sir. We're both on the edge of eternity. Eternity? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, the theologians have some very interesting theories about eternity. There's one school that holds that... Fuse is getting a bit short, isn't it? <laughs> you fool. Die if you insist. But I... I can't stand it. I can't stand it. <laughs> Come back, mate. Come back. There's nothing to worry about. Nothing to worry about? You'll be blown to bits. Well, that's a matter of opinion, Major. You see, this cask here is full of onions. <laughs> the Major couldn't take it. And so General Putnam won his curious duel. Strange as it seems, the American general saved his honor by fighting a duel with a keg of onions. Now for a quick flight from those dueling days to the days of the modern man. Here's an interesting letter from Mr. I. Braun of New York City. He writes, Palm olive brushless not only leaves my face smooth and free from irritation, but also seems to help my razor catch and shave off every little whisker on my entire face. Now, thanks, Mr. Braun. And gentlemen, you can expect the same happy shaves if you'll try one tube of palm olive brushless made with olive oil. I'll amend that to include palm olive lather cream too, because it's also made with olive oil. But just in case you don't like palm olive shave cream, send the empty tube to us and we refund your money. Tomorrow then, buy palm olive shave cream, lather or brushless. Both are made with olive oil. And now, since it's almost time to say goodnight, I want to tell you about those 44 states I mentioned at the beginning of the program. Yes, there are only 44 states in the United States. Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and Kentucky are officially known not as states, but as commonwealths, a term which originally stood for a greater amount of self-government than that held by a state. It's technical, but it's true. Next week, John Hicks brings you the amazing true story of the cobbler who became a doctor overnight and operated on over 600 people. Presented by the two famous shave creams made with soothing olive and palm oils for greater shaving comfort. Palm olive lather cream, palm olive brushless. You know, daylight saving time ends Sunday, September 24th. If your community has been on standard time right along, this program will reach you one hour later. Otherwise, tune in next week as usual. And so until next Thursday night, this is Aloy Villa bidding each of you a good, good night. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. Destination Freedom. The Chicago Defender and Station WMAQ bring you Destination Freedom, dramatizations of the great democratic traditions of the Negro people. 
interwoven in the pageant of history and a part of America's own destination freedom. Today, Destination Freedom tells the story of the famous scientist, Dr. George Washington Carver, in a chapter entitled, The Boy Who Was Traded for a Horse. They never let him forget the horse. He was to remember the horse long after he'd forgotten his father and mother. For in a way, the horse was to set him free if he were worth the horse. That was the question. Was one skinny, sickly little boy worth Farmer Carver's sturdy stallion? That was the question the slave stealers had stopped in a Missouri valley to decide. Is this all you got, Farmer? A horse? Ain't you got no money? All I got's my horse. Ain't that enough? Hey, it don't look like a good trade, Tom. If you ask me... Who's asking you, Slim? The farmer's putting it up to me. A boy and his mother's mine, not yours. Now, be quiet a minute. All right, Tom. All right. You settle it. Farmer? Yeah? Open your horse's mouth. Let's see his teeth. Whoa. 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 There. Well. And teeth look all right. Give him a whack, Slim. Turn him around. Oh. No knots on his legs. But, Tom, a slave boy will fetch a right good price in Louisiana. Only Jackson. Sure he will, Tom. They're dying for slaves down in Louisiana. Sure, Will sure. you keep quiet? Uh. Farmer, you've been following us since we took the boy and his mother from his master. Now, what's she to you? It's my wife that wants them set free at any price. And where's the price? I'm just a cotton farmer. I don't have no money. Mm-hmm. Slim? Yeah, Tom? What do you think? Well, a horse ain't bad, ain't too old. But you being short-sighted, Tom. Yeah, Tom, in ten years, the horse won't be worth nothing. Boy will get more valuable as he grows. Then in ten years... In ten months, you fool, the wall will be open, the slaves will be free. Won't be able to sell them nowhere. We need another horse. Farmer? Yeah? Tie the horse to that tree there and go down the road a piece while we examine them good. Come back when the sun sets. You'll either have the boy or the horse. What about his mother? A horse might be worth a boy. Ain't no horse worth a woman and a boy. Now go down the road and we'll call you when we decide. How'll I know you won't run off and take them both? You don't. We could take them both if we wanted them both. Maybe we don't want them both. Come back in a little while and you'll have either the boy or your horse. Well, what you standing there for? The farmer went down the road. And when the sun set and the purple shadows crept over the valley, he came back toward the tree. He heard a horse galloping away. His horse was gone. The boy was there, small, thin, sick and shivering. Farmer Carver was disappointed. Is this what I gave my horse for? Well, don't lay there. Straighten yourself out, boy. You look like a question mark. At least live long enough so my old woman will know I did what she said. Lord, where like another horse. Was the boy worth the horse? To Farmer Carver, it was a bad bargain. To his old woman, it was different. Marta. Marta. Yeah, Moses. The horse. But I got the boy for you. Where's Mary? You didn't bring Mary. The boy was all I could get. 
He won't live. He's sick. He's got to live. Oh, thanks a lot, Moses. Mary's boy's still alive. He's trembling, and the cold's tearing his little body to pieces. Oh, those miserable slave stealers. Get the doctor. And pay him with what? Answer me, woman. What'll we pay the doctor with? The bugs and the bull weevils eating us out of house and home, and now we, we got a Negro boy to contend with. He's Mary's child, and Mary was my best friend. She always helped us any way she could. Now I'll nurse her boy until he's well again. Yeah, now then what'll we do with him? He'll stay here and live on the farm. He'll be a carver, like us. I'll call him George. George Carver. George. Uh, that horse would have helped plow the cotton crop. We live off the cotton. The boy'll never live to hear you call his name. Moses, will you stop eating a minute and tell me? Where he always spends his time, out in the woods, picking up weeds and worms. I told you we should have kept that horse, uh, Pastor Buddha. Now you know George has helped us a plenty around the farm since he's been here. You said so yourself. I've said he's growing up strange. Don't like it. He's a good boy. And you mustn't be so hard on him all the time. Ten years, and I'm no closer to him than on that first day. He's always a-planting something. Ain't there enough cotton for him to plant without him planting every weed he sees? He's lonely. Yeah, he's crazy. The neighbors say so. They hear him always talking to the flowers and turtles like he was one of them. Oh, George! George! And the questions he asks, he ain't normal. When I was a boy, I didn't give a hang what makes grasshoppers hop and what makes grass green. And the way he loves flowers, it ain't natural. Biscuits, please. He does have a feeling for anything that grows. It's time we sent him to a town where there's a high school. That's what he wants. I'll not waste my money on him. More butter, Marta. George! Oh, here he comes. I'm, I'm coming, Mama. I'm yeah. coming. Well, what you got in your pockets? You're all puffed out. Where you been? I've been out in the woods. Yeah. What did I tell you? Here, clean up and get your supper. Right. What's that you're holding behind you? Let's see it. Oh, it's just an old title I picked up in the, in the creek. Why does a title uh, always... You say? Uh, questions. There he goes again. Uh, what's this in your back pocket, George? Oh, oh landscapes. That's moss. It grows on the north side of the trees. Uh, what's what in your pockets besides the bird's nest and those flowers and that rock? It's a frog I found. Oh. Hey, come here, Jumpy. Jumpy. Oh. Jumpy. Get, him get him off the supper table, George. Will you get him down from here? Take that frog out of here. Oh. Ah, you see there? See what you've done? Now get out of here. Don't talk to him like that. Moses. I'll talk the way I feel. Since the boy's been here, we've had nothing but trouble. And I've had enough. Blame it on the cotton crops. Don't blame it on the boy. The crops was all right until we traded the horse for this daydreaming boy. I wish I'd kept the horse. Moses. You had no right to say that to the boy. George, why do you look that way? Moses don't mean half, he says. George, sit down and eat. I'm, I'm not hungry. The boy was hearing the horse gallop off, and he was not hungry. I, I'm not hungry now. I want to go to the school you were telling me about. <laughs> we can talk about that in the morning. 
in the morning. I'll be a long way from here. A long way. With Martha's kind help, the boy packed his knapsack, stuffed his pockets with seeds and leaves, and walked the 60 miles to Boomtown. Sat in a classroom by day and slept in a woodshed behind a Negro blacksmith's house. Until the owner came in one night to stack the wood. Who's in here? I see you in the shadows there. John, help! Somebody's in here! It's just me, ma'am. You? Who are you? Whose boy are you? Nobody's. I'm George Carver. Every boy is somebody's boy. What are you doing in my woodshed? I live here. You are a mean little thief. John, you hear me? Call the law. Oh, please, I, I, I'm not a thief. I, I go to school. You'll go to jail and the devil for this. That's where oh. you go. What would the likes of you be learning in school? To, to learn how to make things. What things? Oh, John, will you come out here? To, to, to make things, ma'am. Look, like, like this. What are you pulling out of your pocket? This, I, I, I made this. You made this? Uh-huh. This is a flower. I'm, I mean, I grew it. Only God can make things grow. And I learn how from him. If you let me live in the shed while I go to school, will you? Emma, Emma, you call me, you in trouble. It's all right, John. All right. Rag him up in the woodshed and you say, all right, what's he looking for? God. Oh. Well, I'll be frank with both of you. You won't find God in the woodshed on a cold night like this. Now, come on to the house and get some stuff. <laughs> The boy who had been traded for a horse came in for supper and stayed four years working with the blacksmith. He cooked and scrubbed and learned what the school had to teach him about the soil and the sun. His questions outgrew the town, and the blacksmith John and his wife Emma argued over where to send the orphan. Emma, I've already decided that George is going north to college. Isn't that right, George? Yes, I sent my application to Highland College in him. <clears throat> Running north when there's plenty of work to be done right here in the south. What's his education for? There's nothing he can do here, Emma. Missouri ain't the place for him. All he's put in his head about plants and pollination and stuff's wasted. Yep. I still say he shouldn't run away. And what'll his chemistry do for him in the cotton fields? Tell me. <laughs> and besides, look outside. I'm looking. Come away from the door, George. The crowd's gathering again. What? What is it, Uncle John? Been that way all day. What's the matter? Negro was lynched in the next county. The fever's still running high. The boy will not stay here. That college took your application, George. Go north where there ain't no Jim Crow, no discrimination. You got a letter from Mr. Peabody, the president of the college. He welcomed you with open arms. Uh... Yes, I'm President Peabody, but, uh, uh, Carver, George Washington Carver's name. Yes. You see, there's been some terrible, terrible mistake. Your letter said to report to school today. Yes, but we didn't know you were a Negro. You should have told us. What's the difference? The difference is that we don't take Negro students. Never have. Oh? I'm sorry. Uh, try some other college. You're sure you're the young man who applied to enter this college? Of course. I, I got your letter accepting my application. Uh, let's see the letter. Here it is. Uh, you wanted to enter what school? I wanted chemistry. Oh, I'm so sorry. Our chemistry classes are filled. But 
I'd take Botany to start off. Uh, uh, that appears to be filled also. In fact, we just don't seem to have any place for you at all, Carver. <coughs> Try another college. We're very sorry, Carver, but our quota's failed. We just can't accept Negroes and Jews. Sorry. And the boy was traded back and forth between the colleges. And in his head he heard the clatter of a galloping horse as the colleges weighed the question of whether he was worth admission. Until he quietly entered Iowa State College and buried himself in books and laboratories. But in his pockets, the flowers still grew. And on the campus one day, he was stopped and questioned. Young man, what's that sticking out of your pocket? Oh, you mean this plant? Yes, yes. May I see it? Certainly. Mm. <laughs> I used to be an expert on these things. This, I'd say, is a Mencilia ornata. I didn't know the name of it. I, I noticed it because the nearest one grows quite a distance from the college. I pick it up on my way here. Well, then you live a long way from the school. Huh? No wonder you get here at all. Don't you like living in the dormitories? You haven't been here long, mister. Negro students are barred from dormitories here. Oh, I see. Well, then, uh, suppose you move in with me. I live on the campus. <laughs> then it'd kick us both out. I hardly think so. I'm president of this college. Come on. We'll have dinner and talk this over. The boy again went to dinner and stayed four years to find the answers to his boyhood questions to work in the field and laboratories, to learn the laws of the microbes and molecules. He had come to learn. He stayed to teach. He took his students out into the field and showed them how to reap and sow, showed them how to shuffle the molecules and change nature into a dozen different products. The word went around that he could raise corn on a wooden floor, that he was a magician with molecules and test tubes. Then President Wilson had a word with him. Professor Carver, We've gotten another telegram asking if we'll release you to work at another college. I thought I'd take it up with you. My answer is the same. Tell them all that this is where I'm staying. But the requests kept coming in. And one telegram came from the South. It said... Dr. Carver, we're trying to build a school for Negroes here in Alabama. We need help, trained scientific help. Signed, Booker T. Washington. And Carver remembered the clatter of the horse and the barren farm he grew from. And he saw how easily the crops grew in Iowa and threw away the letters until one said, Dr. Carver, if it's money you need, stay where you are. But if you want work that will test every theory you have, come to Alabama. If you want to work and see what really can be done with soil and sun, leave Iowa, come to Tuskegee, come to my office, and we'll plan our fight. I've taught reading and writing. I've taught students how to make good bricks, build walls, and be carpenters. But nothing, nothing will grow here for long. Look out the land. It's a lot different from Iowa, isn't it, Professor? Yes, it is, Dr. Washington. Yes, it is. Carver looked. 
And as far as the eye could see, there were the bleak stretches of yellow and red soil, erosion gullies, rocks, and a few struggling plants. It's easy for a chemist to be a genius in a state like Iowa, but can you grow anything out there? Out there are a half million black and white farmers, mostly sharecroppers, some sick, some starving, and they don't know how to farm. That land's all they've got. Yes, and that land is worn out. Well, you tell them that. I can't. Well, I tell them. We thought you'd start out with a class in farming. Maybe then you can get across the idea of scientific planning. What do you think? Maybe. The new professor was worried. He looked around for a laboratory and found an empty room. There were no orderly test tubes, no trained assistants, but boys off the farms who gathered around the new teacher and waited. He told them, Before we go to the farmers, we'll have to build a laboratory here. And we'll search the fields and farmhouses and dump heaps for bottles we can use as test tubes. We'll gather hollow reed from swamps to make tubing. We'll pick up jugs, skillets, saucepans, anything... We'll weld the steel together and make plows. And then we'll go after the land. They gave him a small plot of land to work on. And the older farmers came by to look and laugh at the sight of a professor behind a plow. Redbud, look at the Yankee professor showing us how to plow. Yeah, look at that. Hey, <laughs> professor, you got the horse hitched the wrong way. You ought to be where the horse is. <laughs> That's right. That's right, man. The farmers laughed and laughed, but they stopped laughing when they saw the thin, stooped professor planting cow peas between the furrows. Well, uh, professor, yeah. you didn't come down here and show us about planting cow peas, did you? It's cotton we got to plant. Yeah. If you can tell us something about cotton, talk. Go if ahead. you can, uh, don't waste time calling us out here. Yeah, yeah, right. 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 Yes, yes, you're right. It's time I told you what I'm planting. It's time you found out you're in Alabama, not Iowa. It's cotton we need, not cow peas. No it's cow cotton peas. I came yeah. to talk about. How much did your crops yield last year? Well, I'd say nigh on two bales. The right. year before this. About six bales, then. Yeah. It's been going down each year. Yeah. But it's the only cash crop we can raise around here. Ground's not good for nothing else. This ain't Iowa, Professor. Then you've yeah. got the answers to why I'm planting cow peas in the ground instead of cotton. Huh? The ground around here is tired of cotton. It's got to have a rest. Yeah. Let it rest this year. And it'll yield double next year. Oh, we heard that four from you, smart professor. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. 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 Look, look, cotton's a money crop. And cotton will bring cash. There's not enough money now to buy food to keep a man's kids from dying before his eyes with plague. Yeah, oh, and he's talking crazy. I'm talking to help you. Now, trust me. Forget about planting cotton and let the land rest with another crop. Do that, and I'll find a way to help stop plague. Yeah. 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 Smart, Professor. How? Bring me all the different weeds and shrubs that grow around you. Even the ones that you say are poison. I'll show you which ones you can eat to stop pellagra. And the farmers brought piles of weeds to the professor's laboratory. And they came out with the weeds cooked and put them before the farmers. 
Now, right around your homes, in the yards, there's weeds you can eat that will stop plague. Yeah. Try them. They're good. They're weeds. Poison, Professor. Everybody knows that. Now, the ones I've selected are not poisoned. If cooked this way. Now, now, look. I'll eat them for you. And if I live, will you rotate your crops? The farmers watched the professor eat the weeds, then took his recipe and turned away from cotton for a year. And the next year, when the new cotton started growing, the counties of Alabama had an early celebration for the great crops. Professor Washington came into Professor Carver's laboratory. Carver, you've done it. What's what's that? What's that? Man, get away from the test tubes for a while and look about the country. It's the greatest cotton crop in Alabama's history. Yes, but I, I, I don't like it. What are you talking about? Cotton is a cash crop, ruled in the South with an iron fist. He who owns the cotton owns the people who work it. I came back here because I know the land has got to grow more than cotton if the people ought to be free. I see. And what do you have in mind? I, I don't know yet. I've been working on some experiments trying to find a way out. You've done enough. Your formula for turning mud into paint's been picked up by the agriculture department. Alabama mud's the most popular mud in the world. And Alabama poverty is the worst in the world. Until we can grow something besides cotton, they're doomed. Well, have you any ideas what ought to be planted? I have plenty of ideas. I just don't have any ideas on how to get rid of the cotton. The professor walked home from his laboratory and saw the cotton ready to burst into bowls for the biggest crop. And but that morning, a farmer had even bigger news. Professor Carver! Carver! Yes? What is it? Look, I found one in the cotton patch this morning. I can't see it. What, what, what is it? The bowl weevil. Oh, where there's one, there's a billion. What will we do? Well, there's nothing to do but plow under the cotton and plant another crop. What crops is there the boll weevil can't get at? You call the farmers together with my garden. I'll tell them. The farmers for a hundred miles gathered around the professor's little garden and saw him lift a familiar vine. Here's a sweet potato and a peanut vine untouched by the boll weevil. Next to it was the cotton. The boll weevil ate it. Now I say again, plow under your cotton, plant sweet potatoes and peanuts. Well, I don't know much about this peanut crop, but what can we lose? Bull Weevil's got cotton. I'd stake everything on the crops he's talking about. I'm willing. Me too. Uh, well, what can we lose? Yeah, I'll go along. The professor won the first round. The farmers plowed under their cotton, sprinkled the ground with poison and planted peanuts and sweet potatoes. And when the crops came up, the leafy vines stretched across the state. And the farmers came around. They had a few polite questions. The peanut crops planted grown well, Professor. Yeah. It'd be the biggest peanut crop the country's known, some say. I was yeah. wondering what do we do with them when they're ready to be picked. Well, peanuts and potatoes are food. You could find a market for them. I wonder. I wonder. <laughs> Professor Carver went back to his laboratory to reshuffle the molecules of the peanut and potato. But the crops were almost ready to harvest, and some were rotting in the field. Panic swept over the farms, and the farmers came over to visit the professor at his home. 
they threw open the door. There he is. As the Yankee professor told us to plant peanuts. Come out, professor. We want to talk to you. Well, well, come out here. Yeah. What do you want here? What have I done to you? You've made us sink everything we had in the fool's crop. Now the fields will rot with them. Nobody wants to buy peanuts, professor. Oh, let him alone. Ain't his fault. Too many peanuts on the market already. We uh, took his advice and planted them. Let's give them part? back to him. Sure. Wait, man, wait. I tell you, you did right by planting peanuts. And there's not enough on the market. Don't tell us. You tell the guys who buy them. Yes, thanks to yes. you, we raised enough peanuts to supply a circus for ten years. Look, farmer, there is more use for your crops than for circuses for pleasure. I'm working on ways to use them. In a few more days, I'll have something that'll make them buy out all your crops. Give me a little more time. Time? time yeah. uh, I read where they're even planning to admit foreign-grown peanuts into the country tax-free. Yeah. Yeah. More peanuts than anybody will ever use. Give them to him, boy. Let me go back to my laboratory and finish the experiments. I'll have something to make you proud of what you planted. Well, here's some you can have to work on. Uh, hold up them bushels of peanuts, yeah, boy. Yeah, yeah. Dump them on them. Yeah. 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 When the farmers had gone... The professor picked up the peanuts, took them to his laboratory, gave orders that no one was to come in. And for six days and nights, they watched the light burn while he stripped down the peanut, took it to pieces, and began to rebuild. On the seventh day, he staggered out of the laboratory. Carver, Carver, are you all right? Very well, very well. Tell the farmers not to destroy the crop. Let me rest and wake me Monday. I'm going to Washington. Professor Carver slept. And when he woke, filled his satchel with jars and tubes from his laboratory and went on his way to Washington to place the case of the peanut before the Senate committee in a crowded hearing room. Uh, uh, <coughs> Has the last witness been heard? Is it agreed that peanuts will be excluded from the tariff bill, then? If so, we'll proceed. Just a minute, Mr. Chairman. One more witness from Tuskegee Institute, Dr. George Washington Carver. Oh, another witness? What can he say that hasn't already been said? If you listen to him for five minutes, Mr. Chairman, there's some manufacturers in the house who would like to hear him. Uh, the chair will recognize Dr. George Washington Carver for five minutes. Can you cover your subject in five minutes, Dr. Carver? No, but I can make a start. What are you here for? To testify for or against the tariff on peanuts? Oh, I'm not interested in tariffs, gentlemen. I was told the Senate wanted to know if it were worth the while to support the peanut crops in the South. Now, if you'll wait until I lift my suitcase to the table and open it, I'll present you with the peanut. First here... Made from the peanut are some inexpensive insulating boards. This is synthetic coffee. Paper, flour, milk and cheese, plastics, stains, creams, powder, buttermilk, mucilage, ink, starch, tapioca. Professor Carver pulled out of his bag 300 synthetics made from the Alabama peanuts. The senators listened 
The manufacturers rushed home to order the southern crops. The boy who had been traded for a horse put the peanuts back into his bag and went to his laboratory to reshuffle the molecules. The sound of the horse still clear in his head. have just heard Destination Freedom's dramatization of the story of Dr. George Washington Carver. It is brought to you by the Chicago Defender newspaper and station WMAQ. Destination Freedom is written by Richard Durham and produced under the direction of Homer Heck. The role of George Washington Carver was played by Fred Pinker. Others were Hope Summers, Gladys Williams, Oscar Brown, Ken Griffin, George Kluge, and Arthur Peterson. The special music was written by Emil Soderstrom and played by Elwin Owen and Bobby Christian. This is Hugh Downs inviting you to be with us again next week at this same time. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. From the K-Rob Collection, this has been Audio Antiques, a program featuring shows from the golden age of American radio. I'm Ken Robinson, and our email address is audioantiques at hkrmail.com. Our music is by hbeats at hbeats330 at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, and feel free to subscribe to Audio Antiques from the K-Rob Collection. 